If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 152, Watch Out RSA Conference, Amazon, the world's largest cloud provider, hosted its first ever security conference last week, Reinforce. We talk to the CEO of one cloud security startup in our second segment about what that means for the information security industry. But first, when Akamai researcher Larry Cash Dollar check the contents of a honeypot he operates from his home network, he was surprised by what he saw. Buried in a binary file that had turned up in the honeypot was a note from a unknown malware author apologizing for hacking and then bricking his Internet of Things device. The binary turned out to be a malicious program, which Cash Dollar dubbed Silex, that was designed to break into and then wipe clean any insecure Internet of Things device running a version of the Linux operating system that it encountered. In our first segment, we talk to Larry about his discovery of Silex and about its alleged teenaged author. We also talk about the bigger problem of insecure Internet of Things devices. More than two years after the BrickerBot malware circulated, we don't seem to be getting any better at securing IoT endpoints. Larry Cashdollar, and I'm a senior security information response engineer. At Akamai Technologies. Yes. Larry, welcome to uh, Security Ledger Podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be here. So I have you on this week um, because you were the one of the first researchers or the first researcher to raise the alarm about this new IoT-focused malware, Silex, that was circulating online. Tell us a little bit about Silex and, and how you cross paths with it. Silex is a sort of like a, a botnet, but not technically a botnet since it kills its host. Botnets kind of want to keep the hosts alive so that they can continue to reside on them. Right, right. They they typically use the host for some other reason, either DDoS or XMR, cryptocurrency mining, things like that. But but this this one specifically tried to kill the host it was on, and I had noticed it. I run a honeypot at home off of my home network because it, it seems that I get a lot more malicious traffic towards my home IP address than I do on a virtual server that I would have hosted in the cloud. So I was, you know, every morning I sort of checked my logs to see what sort of interesting things I've caught. And I'll take a look at you know each binary I've gotten and, and run a strings command on it and see if there's anything interesting that pops out. And this binary actually had a message to the owner of the device saying that they were you know sorry, but they were bricking the device and uh, they were doing it um, pretty much <laughs> because they didn't want anybody else to build botnets off of vulnerable devices. That's kind of a red flag. <laughs> yeah, and you know at first I I didn't think. Um, anything of it, you know, I just figured I, I didn't have time to, to really write it up. So I just sort of tweeted it out saying, you know, Hey, there's this, you know, malware that I just caught that's bricking devices heads up. And I guess the media got hold of it and it just sort of went pretty viral around the web. 
um, which I, I didn't expect and hmm. was interesting. I think all told, this ended up impacting or affecting a couple thousand IoT endpoints, or is, it, is the counter still running on this? Is it still out there circulating? We're now it's, about five, five or six days out. I, I think it died when the young man that wrote it uh, didn't realize that he was going to get this much attention, and it spooked him pretty quick. So he shut down the command and control server, which pretty much shut this thing down. If you actually run this on a device, it tries to connect out to the command and control server, and if it can't reach the command and control server, it just hangs, and it doesn't actually run any of the malicious commands. Right. So he ended up pretty much shutting it off because he didn't want to get in trouble and you know, didn't realize that he would get this much attention. So he's, he's decided to quit the uh, IoT botnet market. I suggested he do something constructive for the internet community as a whole, and I said you might want to write a honeypot yeah. uh, to, to trap things. And he's like, thought that was a good idea. So um, <laughs> I think he's, I think he's twirling away on that now, which is good because I don't, you know, yeah, I don't want any destruction, and I don't want people getting in trouble, especially right. when they're young. So the examples you used in, on the Akamai blog were, uh, or the commands were for BusyBox, but was this specific to, which is a, a form of, of Linux that runs often on kind of embedded devices, but was this specific to BusyBox, or was it actually any Linux variant potentially it, could be infected? It would have infected any Linux variant because some of the commands didn't require BusyBox. Um, so I think one of the things that protected generic Linux devices was this thing only spoke Telnet. It wasn't looking at SSH. So if you had, uh, say you had a Red Hat Enterprise system and your the password to log into it was, you know, uh, root and def, uh, admin or root password and it was some guessable password, the only thing that would be saving your machine from getting infected from this was that it didn't have Telnet listening. Mm -hmm. So if it was geared towards IoT devices with Telnet listening, but mm -hmm. if there was something with Telnet listening that had a default password and it was a Unix-like OS, this would certainly destroy it. One of the last commands that it would run would be remove-rmf star mm -hmm. and the, you know on, on the slash partition, which is going to remove all of the files and binaries and libraries off of your root disk and it's going to render the machine sort of, it's going to pretty much give the machine a frontal lobotomy. It's going to be useless after that. So, so this would pretty much have destroyed anything that was Unix-like that had Telnet running. Um, and what types of devices are we talking about here? It was really going to, I think, be mostly effective on, you know, IoT cameras, DVRs, NAS, or network, you know, attached storage, things like that, that, that had embedded Linux. Um, but this one was sort of walking the dangerous line of not just embedded, but enterprise Linux, if, if you just happen to be speaking the wrong protocol. And these default passwords, were they um, hard-coded into the malware itself? And like, where where is that list coming from? Yeah, the, they were hard-coded in the in the malware itself. I didn't, I didn't pull apart the passwords, but I, I pretty much made the assumption that it would be using the same list that Mirai did. Um, and then maybe, maybe right. he had augmented that some with some other known default passwords. So this is just kind of out there, and if you're putting together a piece of malware that that wants to try its hand at, at default passwords, there are resources online where you can grab a few tens of thousands of them and, yeah, and try right, those. Right. right. So he was sort of making a, a sort of a shotgun approach by hitting anything that would 
would mm-hmm. log in or allow them to log in with a list of passwords and then destroying it. This isn't the first malware uh, to do something like this. There was famously uh, BrickerBot uh, back in 2017 yeah. that actually did it infect, uh, you know, I don't know, a few yeah. hundred thousand devices, maybe even millions of devices doing the same thing, um, vulnerable IoT embedded devices, and it would kind of shut them down to prevent them from becoming part of, you know, Mirai or some other botnet. How common is it that we see things like this circulating, these kind of um, Robin Hood or, or, you know, maybe it's more bad. Batman than Robin Hood, you know, kind of um, breaking the law to make the world a better place type uh, malware. Honestly, this was the first one that I saw that would try and brick the device uh, after BrickerBot. So I was pretty shocked to see this. You know, uh, every piece of malware that I've seen is usually looking to establish a a toehold in the device and then use it as either a, a DDoS bot or some sort of cryptocurrency mining. And I I haven't seen anything that's trying to actually destroy the host. I guess, sadly, it's been two years since BrickerBot, but obviously there are still uh, a substantial number of connected devices, IoT devices out there that are using default username and password that are vulnerable. I mean, it seems from my perspective, like there's been tons of attention to this problem, like do not deploy your device with the default username and password. But how, how big of a problem is it still? It seems like it's it's a pretty big problem still because there's there's some of the botnets out there are are pretty sizable, which, which lets us know that there are many devices that are still vulnerable. Um, I think manufacturers, some manufacturers have made some strides in getting devices to be shipped without vulnerable services listening. And I think some have actually made some changes as to, you know, what the default passwords are. And if they do have default passwords, the device doesn't have Mm -hmm. any remote Mm -hmm. administration services. Um, But I don't know. I've only seen a, a handful of IoT devices that have made that change. I don't know. I don't have a good enough visibility into the IoT market to see how many actual manufacturers have right. have started thinking about security. I've seen some changes, but I imagine there may be still some vendors that are still sending stuff right. out that's this is, still vulnerable. You can vulnerable. address this problem in two ways. One is to have maybe a device-specific password by default that just is on a sticker on the device, right? Which is not so secure if you have physical access to the device, but otherwise works. And the other, as you said, is to harden the device so it doesn't listen on Telnet or SSH or anything like that. Um, by default. Yep. And, you know, the other thing that, that manufacturers need to look at is their software developers need to be educated in secure programming methods because you can't have, you know, web accessible interfaces that have simple command injection vulnerabilities in, in you know, the get or post request because they're passing, you know, uh, user supplied input to a shell somewhere because they're executing a curl command or, uh, a system command to to do something on the on the uh, device that should have done in a more secure way. Uh, so we're, we're seeing a lot of that stuff now, where there's actual exploits for services that are being um, exploited to gain access to devices that don't have you know telnet running. So it's you know there's there's other other methods that vendors need to take in mm. consideration when in regards to security. And that's, you know, actually getting their developers to, to understand secure programming methods. It's interesting because the author of Silex is this, um, again, a, allegedly 14-year-old boy who uses the handle Light Leafon 
And he, he actually he actually sat for a podcast interview with Ankit Anubhav, um, who does a podcast, who's a researcher at the New Sky Security and, and does a fairly recently launched podcast focusing on malware and malware authors. So this boy, uh, allegedly, again, Light Leafon, previously authored something called the Hedo botnet. And I know um, Ankit asked him about exploits versus, uh, you know, using default passwords in Telnet. And um, he sort of said like, oh, yeah, I, I really just prefer to use Telnet and SSH. You know, I don't I don't usually I don't need to mess around too much with with code, you know, with with doing exploits, yeah. um, which I thought was very telling. You know, it's just sort of yes, telling and sad. <laughs> and sad, right. And sad. Yeah. It's a really interesting world we're living in. I mean, this, these kids have always been out there who um, have have some level of skill and are curious uh, or as he put it, just maybe bored. But mm. it would seem like uh, the Internet of Things uh, is a big opportunity potentially for them, given its size and scale. It's a vulnerable playground. It was sort of like when I was looking at WordPress plugins years ago <laughs> right. um, as, as some research um, that one of my bosses had mentioned I should do. And it was just a, a, a playground for vulnerable pieces of code f- or web applications, and it's it's sort of like the WordPress plugins of the IoT world is you know IoT devices is is sort of what it is today. They're just you know a lot of devices out there that are vulnerable, mm-hmm. and it gives malicious users somewhere to get a device running or get something running their software to do something harmful or destructive. So it's right now it's sort of like the wild wild west. Um, so where, where's the best, what's the best choke point right now for this particular problem? I mean, obviously Silex is gone, but, but you know, there could well be other um, IoT-based worms that just are scanning, looking for devices and trying default username, password combinations. Um, what's the best way to get our arms around this particular risk right now, absent, you know, getting manufacturers to up-level their um, coding? I, I, I'm not sure. I think, you know, I know some legislation had helped um, with some of the, the, the vendors, you know, taking security into mind. And I think we just gonna have to continue on, you know, getting our vendors or, or manufacturers to understand that if they put out a bad product, there's going to be repercussions. Um, if they have something that comes out that's wholly insecure and causes a problem where, you know, this device was used in a DDoS attack against, a, you know, a, a target on the Internet that there's repercussions for that. Um, and they should be, they should be looking at security, you know, security should be, should be part of the, the first part of the design phase. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be left as an afterthought or after something's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it needs to be, you know, straightforward in the, the first part of the design and not, you know, left to as an afterthought because we're, you know, the, the entire internet is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a global network. And if, if there's something on it, that's a threat, then, you know, that needs to be addressed. And, uh, if you're a small business or even a, a, an enterprise and you're concerned about this particular risk or exposure, um, is there an easy way to get a handle on whether you've got a potentially vulnerable, you know, default configuration device out there in your environment? Yeah, there might be. I mean, if you're, if you're a technically, adept person, you might want to look at your device and look at the, uh, you could look at the manufacturer and the serial number, and you might be able to Google that and see if there's known vulnerabilities for it. 
uh, or known default password. So it might be just the easiest way to do that. If you're more into technical stuff and you actually want to put it on a you know an internal network and end map the thing or something and, and take a look and see what ports are running, um, if you've got that skill set, that might be another way. Um, but I, I would think you know just Googling your device, your manufacturer, and the model number might get you enough information to say, hey, this thing's dangerous. I probably should either see if there's any updates for it uh, from the manufacturer to update the firmware, or you know possibly try and put it behind a router mm -hmm. where the thing isn't uh, exposed to the internet um, or behind a firewall, I should say. Right, Larry Cashdollar of Akamai. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger podcast about the Silex malware. Sure, anytime. Larry Cashdollar is a senior security information response engineer at the firm Akamai. Up next, when Amazon brought its reinforced show to Boston in late June, the goal was to highlight the latest efforts that the massive cloud computing provider is taking to make its environment friendly for application developers and for security companies. But is Amazon and its AWS service a playground for new security startups or a stealth competitor to them? In our second segment this week, we're joined by someone who should know. Steve Mullaney is the president and CEO of Aviatrix, a startup that focuses on securing multi-cloud environments. In this conversation, Steve and I talk about the rapid computing transformation that's happening as enterprise IT migrates swiftly to cloud environments like AWS and Microsoft Azure. Steve and I discuss the security needs that companies have as they migrate to the cloud and whether Amazon, Google, and Microsoft are partners to security providers or potential competitors. Steve Mullaney, President and CEO, Aviatrix. Steve, welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. Okay, so I'm going to start off as I often do with when I talk to folks who are coming from startups, which is if our listeners haven't heard of Aviatrix, could you kind of give us the origin story of your company and what you guys do? So the origin of the, of the company is really in the, if you will, the shift from IT, from kind of a, the client server world on-prem to the cloud world and recognizing that shift. And one of the things that we say we're going to do is we're going to help enterprise build out their enterprise multi-cloud backbone. And so why that's important is, is as enterprise move from on-prem client server architectures and they move into the cloud, what they need is just like they used to have on client server architectures, they need an architecture for security and networking as they move to the cloud. And that's that's what Aviatrix provides for them. In my experience, it, like engineers often think that once you come up with like a better solution for doing something that everyone will like immediately stop using what they're using and migrate to the better solution. But as we've seen with cloud, it doesn't really work that way. So most companies are now these days managing a mixture of uh, legacy, you know, on-premises IT infrastructure, and then private cloud, and maybe some public cloud applications and services that they use. Is is that right? So I've been in networking for 35 years, and in the, the last computing transformation change that I saw was the move from mainframe to client server back in the you know late 80s, early 90s. So when you think about back in the late 80s and early 90s, client server was treated as fun and games. It was for sharing printers, right? It was for work groups. It wasn't real enterprise computing. That was SNA, that was mainframes. And then all of a sudden, like it felt like on a Tuesday morning, everyone decides client server is the way I'm going. And the whole 
world of mainstream enterprises all in the same day decide that's the strategic direction. Synoptic, Cisco, Novell, everybody, that's how we're going to do computing. And that was the early 90s. And so for me, six months ago, I noticed the same thing happen. We've been talking about cloud for how long? 12 years, 15 years. And it was all talk. You know, it was all fun and games. It was all, hey, someday. But you know what? Until then, I'm going to do private cloud, maybe even hybrid cloud. But you know what? Everything's still on-prem. And what I noticed was six months ago, all of a sudden, I don't know why, they all decided on the same Tuesday morning, cloud is now strategic to us. And we're not going to just talk about it anymore. We're doing it. And that is our strategic direction. Everything on-prem is an expense. Everything in the cloud is an investment. And we are moving. That herd just shifted. So that's the key thing for me that's happened most recently is that shift in the humans. And I actually think Amazon, you know, with their reinforce, is, is hitting right, into the, right in the perfect timing of that, which is security actually really now really matters in the cloud. As you look at the space where it is now, um, what, what are the big security challenges that organizations are having with their cloud environments, whether that's public, private, uh, what have you? I think that's a big issue. As a, one customer told me, all this uh, clicky-clicky stuff and automation is all fantastic, but from a, a, a security standpoint, it's faster to disaster. I like that saying, by the way. That's a good. I think that needs to be on a T-shirt somewhere. <laughs> I wish I thought of it, but it was uh, it was one of our customers. But no, that, that's exactly right. And so one of the things that um, so I think you know, kind of security and visibility and all those things are are, are super important because, look, even Amazon says you know security is uh, you know it's a it's a joint responsibility. You know, I'll I'll secure my infrastructure, meaning you know I'll, I'll, in terms of infra, uh, AWS, but Anything, your data, anything you do on top, that's your responsibility, right? And so things like, this is a service that we're just announcing actually at Reinforce is what we call a firewall network service where we really allow you to easily bring in a next generation firewall. So we've done a, you know, some integration work with Palo Alto Networks such that we can make it much, much easier for people to integrate their VM series firewall into AWS because... The first thing the you know, cloud IT, right? Guys in the IT organization, the security guys, first thing they're going to reach for is I want to bring my Palo Alto next generation firewall into the cloud with me, right? Because I understand it. It's a, it, it, I, I, I can leverage the policies I've created on-prem and I want to move that into the cloud. And the pro unfortunately, the problem is AWS you know, their whole mantra for everything and all the cloud providers is go build, right? You're a builder. We give you the low level constructs for you to go build whatever you want. Isn't this wonderful? Well, that's great for an early adopter. It's great for Netflix, right? But now you're United Airlines. You're a bank, you know, you're a Main Street Midwestern conservative manufacturing company. I don't want to have anything to do with a power tool. I'm going to cut my hand off. I want to move into a house with furniture, right? I am not building anything. But Amazon, basically, and all the other, they, they well, look, we give you the constructs, you can do whatever you want. And the constructs that they give you to be able to integrate in your Palo Alto firewall cause you to have compromise. And the compromises are around performance, around scale, around visibility. 
and around ease of deployment and ease of running. And because we're kind of born in the cloud for the cloud, we eliminate all those compromises and then we integrate the Palo Alto VM series kind of almost into, into us. We hide all those complexities from Palo Alto. So it really, in effect, makes the Palo Alto VM series very cloud-like, right? So I can easily integrate it. I can easily operate it. I don't have to give up any performance hits or scalability hits. And we mask a lot of the kind of issues, if you would, with the constructs of AWS and allow VM series to integrate more easily into the cloud. So that everybody's happy. The security guys are happy because I get my Palo Alto VM series and all its policies. And then the cloud infrastructure guys are happy because I can easily do this in a very cloud-like manner. I think one of the confusing things is that there are many uh, security applications and tools that you can deploy in the cloud, you know, as a, as a VM or something like that. They're maybe bundled or they've, they've done deals with Amazon or or Microsoft or whomever to deploy those uh, within their cloud environments. But my guess is that there are qualitative differences that those are not all the same things and that just having your uh, legacy security tool you know, on a VM in a, in a cloud environment isn't really quite the thing. same thing as having something that really is architected and engineered to operate in that cloud environment. Like what, what are some of the sort of qualitative differences between, between those options? Again, everything goes back to the, to the human. First thing you have to do is transfer over the way that they used to do it you now have to allow them initially to do it that way in the cloud. Yeah, don't change anything. Don't change anything. Don't change what it looks like. Now, once you then get them in there, over time, you can then say, hey, now that you're in here, you think everything's good, we've moved it on over, we're doing everything the way it used to be. The cloud is a little different. We could maybe do it a little differently. But that's when you can start having the conversation. You can't you can't make too many things new to them because they're going to freak out. So, I mean, one of the things that's happening now, of course, is that companies uh, not only are, are in the cloud, but they're in more than one cloud. So even uh, they might be have some infrastructure on AWS, some on Google, some on Microsoft, Azure. That could have happened by accident. It could have happened by way of uh, some acquisition they made, whatever. And so there's this notion of transit networks to kind of connect these. Talk a little bit about transit networks, because that's a space that you guys play in. Uh, I've not met one enterprise, not one. Every single one I talk to, they're going to have multiple clouds, right? Whether it's, and it's not that they're moving workloads from one cloud to the other. It's you know, the marketing department likes Google and we started on AWS. We, you know, we got Office 365 and Azure and, and I've got some retail customers that won't let me put anything on AWS because they're their they're enemy. And so they, for what, all these different reasons, they look and they say, it's, it's going to be a multi-world. So just like the go build mentality of AWS that they don't want to deal with. Well, guess what? Azure and Google say the same thing, but guess what? One tool is metric and the other tool isn't, right? And they're different tools. And then they're like, wait a minute, I couldn't even really keep up with the constructs and tools that Amazon was giving me. Now I got Azure and Google and they're all different again. Yep. They go, I, I don't want to build. I need someone to, you know, abstract this away, decouple all the low level constructs for me. And I need, you know, kind of one interface. So when they start deploying security services and networking services, on top of this, I want the same 
services to work across all the different clouds, right? And then transit as a networking, a kind of advanced transit networking services is just a way to be able to extend that from not just within multiple regions, say within AWS, but also to, you know, VNets in Azure and VPCs and, and Google as well. So what's the problem that's bringing uh, customers to Aviatrix door right now? Um, what is the acute pain point that you guys are uh, addressing? A lot of it is that mantra of go build. So they've now burned the boat in terms of their on-prem corporate data center. That's, that's irrelevant. It's going away and or at least irrelevant. And all of my future work and investment is in, is in, is in cloud. So they're, now they're looking and they're going, uh-oh, grass ain't so green. I thought it was a hell of a lot easier than this. And that go build mentality, which, you know, is, is great for the early people is not so good for me. And I'm doing this across multiple clouds. And this isn't just fun and games, a couple of VPCs, this is thousands of VPCs. And this is the direction of where I'm taking my entire IT. And this is a lot more complicated than I thought. And so they start dabbling and it's like anything else. Like a friend of mine said, it's like changing your oil. Like some people, oh, I like to change my oil. Okay. Yeah. Cause you know, maybe once every three months I get under the car and change my oil. What if you had to change the oil of a hundred cars every day? Would you still like to change your oil? Mm, you know what? I think I need to automate that because I like to change oil, but I don't like to do a hundred a day. That's the problem. When you're doing one every three months, you can do it manually. You're a vendor who is kind of adding on top of this basic service cloud computing, basically that all these other much larger vendors uh, are providing uh, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, others. You know, there's that saying when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. You're, the, you're sort of the grass here. You're a very small vendor and they're more or less oblivious to your needs and priorities. It's actually a really good partnership in a relationship, I would say, in the sense that when you think of the scale at which those three cloud providers have to do things, right? To when they have to do things, they can't just roll things out in one region. They got to roll them out in all the regions all over the world. And there's a base level of kind of constructs that they have to put. There's a reason they deliver constructs as opposed to fully baked services. Yep. So what you get is the bare minimum, right? Because they have to do it everywhere. And so the level of sophisticated functionality that they can come out with, by definition, they can't. Right. And so that's where we come in. We come in. So we embrace everything they do and we extend. Right. We replace where we need to replace and extend where we need to extend and do new things on top of that. And then, of course, you need to do that across all three clouds. Right. And so the customers demand it to be somebody other than them. Right. Because they want it to be they want to create an open environment. Right where I'm not only just restricted to just use it in one cloud or another, right? That's a, that's a huge push by enterprise. That's, that's a mandatory thing. I don't want to be locked. Yep. And a lot of it is just because of the scale. So you think about when they do things, they only do it to a little bit level because they want to keep that instance when they roll out a service, they want to keep that instance to the smallest instance that they can, because they're trying to, they are, adamantly trying to keep their cost down of their service, right? So they can't, they can't do it if it requires this massive instance with lots of memory, right? And lots of compute because 
they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to work so they have to actually roll it out for the lowest common denominator and then they're the way they work they love people like us because then we come on top of that we basically roll on the advanced services on top of that and the customers then pay us but they don't have to then do that for every one of their customers you know what i mean if they had to do that with such a high cost infrastructure they, they would never make any money Steve Mullaney of Aviatrix, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger Podcast. It was great having you. Thank you. Steve Mullaney is the president and CEO of the firm Aviatrix. 